that date, October 17th of 2009, my friends from out of town were coming in town because of a wedding. We were all going to the wedding, but only a few of us were going to the rehearsal dinner, and I was not one of them. The rehearsal dinner was on Friday night. The wedding was set to be on Saturday. And of course, being a lawyer who just graduated, I hang out with other lawyers, and this guy was a friend of mine. We played softball together, law softball together, which is kind of lame, but it's big in the law game. And, um, you know, we're playing uh, softball together, and we get pretty close, and he's coming in town for the wedding. And I'm like, yeah, man, you can stay at my house, you know. And I didn't go to the rehearsal dinner that night. And I'm not sure if he went or if he was already out, but I stayed in and kind of waited for the rehearsal dinner to be over. I remember I had a Crohn's attack that week because that night I tried to eat Chinese food, and I just, like, couldn't. And so finally, you know, all my friends were out, and they called me to come out. Um, and I meet him out and the night, the night's winding down at that point. And the guy who was staying with me was at, uh, a, a, a bar, a different bar than we were at. So I walk down, go to that bar and, um, I see him out front and I'm like, what's going on, man? And he's like, uh, they won't let me back in or something like that. I can't remember what it was. So I walk in like talk to the bartenders I know that I'm friends with and I don't even remember you know like if I even asked about my buddy I probably didn't and then I remembered he was out there a few minutes later so I I, I left the the bar because he and I were leaving together he's staying with me and so it was obviously time to go so I left the bar and I I come out and I turn to the right and as I turn to the right he's about 80 feet away from the entrance to the bar um, and he is being tackled to the ground by some police officers, taken to the ground by some police officers. And they're tri- th- what I saw was they were pulling him down by his shirt, and they tripped him and put him down on his face, and you could hear him, and he was in a lot of pain. And this was a guy who would say the blessing even if we were eating at McDonald's. He was just salt of the earth, is salt of the earth, good person. Everybody loves this guy. Always did the right things, like morally, like he and I kept each other in check you know, really good person. And he was a prosecutor at the time, meaning he prosecuted people for committing crimes. And to see him, you know, be taken down like that, I was so confused. And, you know, I thought, well, you know, this is a mistake or, you know, they're just going to let, they're just trying to teach him a lesson and let him go. That happened a lot down in that area. This was a college bar area. And so I walk up after they lifted him up, put him on his feet and I walk up and I got my hands up. And I'm like, what's going on here, guys? Like, are you guys really taking this guy to jail? And they're like, yeah, we're taking him to jail. And I'm like, which jail are you taking him to? Because I got to go, I have to go pick him up in the morning. I have to go to his bond hearing. And the guy's like, what are you, a lawyer? And I'm like, yeah, I'm, yeah, I actually am a lawyer. And as soon as I said that, I guess, because I mean, I was only 25 at the time. And, you know, I had like on frat guy clothes or whatever. And then they didn't believe me. And they, they, it, it pissed them off and I had my hands up. So they immediately came at me before when I first walked up and asked him what, what, what was going on. He grabbed the guy grabs me by the shoulder, slings me up the, the sidewalk. And so I just go with it. I don't, you know, advance or anything. I set my hands up and I'm like, that's when I was like, you know, what jail are you taking them to? I'm an attorney. And as soon as I said, I was an attorney, they jumped on me. And they put us in the back of the cop car together while they're walking us back to the cop car. They're like, you learn your lesson yet, Mr. Lawyer? And I'm like, what am I going to jail for? 
I'm, I'm in cuffs. Like for somebody with anxiety to be in cuffs, like it is insane how you feel. I didn't know I had PTSD at the time, but you know, to be restricted like that was something I'd never felt before. And it's hard to describe. It's not like you would think at all. It feels like you're literally being kidnapped, especially if you don't know what you're being arrested for. And so they're poking at us and they're making fun of us. And I'm really upset. I mean, I obviously like this is my nightmare. And I had no idea what the guy, what, what my friend did. I'm not gonna say his name. I didn't know. I, so I'm like attacking him. I'm like, what did you do? Like spit on the, like, what is going on here? Like, how did this happen? What am I being arrested for? And they said it right then and there. They said, you're being arrested for asking questions. That's it. That's what they said. And he said, and you won't stop asking questions. So they put us in the back of the cop car and I'm like this, they're going to let us go. They're definitely going to let us, he's joking when he said that. And I'm in the back of the cop car with my friend and I'm like, dude, what did you do? Like, what is, he's like, I have no idea. He's like, I have no clue. And I'm like, try to piece it together so that I can figure out like how much trouble he's in, which I'm going to be associated with. And when we get to the, to the jail, now they drive us all the way. I mean, it was like a 20 minute drive. My heart is racing. I am terrified of what's about to happen. My dad had already explained to me, this is the worst place on earth. So at least I had my buddy with me. So we get there and when we get to the desk to take photos, they tell us what we're charged with. He was charged with trespassing, which I knew he wasn't trespassing. He was 90 feet away from the, the restaurant door. I left him out there and he was in the same spot that he was at. Then I ask him what my charges are, and they say interfering with an arrest. And I was like, what does that mean? Interfere? I'm like, never heard of this in law school. Never heard of anybody ever being charged with it before. I had no clue. It was like they made something up. And now I'm in this place, and we're right there in the front. And, like, I remember, like, the lady was trying to calm me down, and so she let me take, like, three or four different photos, and I had a mug shot. Like, you know, like, I felt good about, like, that that they were going to keep me and my friend together and that we were going to be out in the open. And things changed immediately after we took our photos. They took us to a holding cell right there near the photo place. And this is like a huge open area. They're in the middle and their cells lying in the walls. And this was a Friday night because the wedding was on a Saturday. And they walk us over to these holding, this holding cell. And I'm looking at all these other empty holding cells and it is packed and it's one bench and it, I'm, there's no way that you could have fit more than five people on there comfortably. It was one person was supposed to lay there head to toe. And it, that's all that was in it was that bench. And then there was about, I mean, you, you could lift your legs up and hit the, hit the, the end of the cell. And when we got in there, it was completely slammed. I mean, I wasn't about to sit on the floor. There was a guy laying on the floor and underneath him, he had a food uh, container as his pillow and he was bleeding out of both of his arms. This guy had no shirt on. And so I was like, we got to sit on this thing. And so my buddy's a pretty big dude. He kind of like edges people over and he gets me like the smallest little spot at the end. Thank God. And so he's already protecting me. I think he felt bad, you know, which was his nature, you know, to, to, to stick up for his friends, which was mine too. I mean, that's all I was doing. I thought, and one by one, you know, we, there's guys like talking about why they're in there. And there's a guy in there at the end who's in there for like attempted murder. There's a guy in there for burglary. And then there's a couple dudes in there for DUIs and domestic violence. And the guy on the ground was in there for like nothing, obviously like just homeless or something. 
So one by one, they start letting everybody out of the cell late. I mean, this was like six hours after we had been there, just like sitting there, like not moving. So one by one, they're pulling people out of these out of the cell. And it's the DUI guy, and then it's the criminal domestic violence guy, and then it's the burglary. And then by the end of it, it was just me and my buddy interfering, trespassing, and attempted murder. And we're sitting there like, when are we heading out of here? Like what, you know, what the heck's going on? And my, by this time, like I'm in full, like panic meltdown. I couldn't even like talk. My tongue was numb. I remember being like, kid, like, what, what, like what's going on? Like trying to get, trying to get like words out to people. And like, I, it was like, I was in slow motion. That part I was already messed up from. And then they pull us out of the cell with the other guy and they walk us around and they hand us our orange jumpsuits and tell us that we have to go down to the shower and change because we're being transported to the general population where all, where all the other big crime, you know, people who are already sentenced, ready to go and, and be sent to a prison. That's where they were taking us. And, oh, man, I remember, I remember take, taking my clothes off and, like, thinking what what am I, I don't like, what am I going to do? Like, how am I possibly going to be able to talk my way? You know, there's just nothing. I'm just like literally being walked to my hell, literally being walked to like a pit of lava and being pushed in. That's what I felt like. We walk out and it's just me and my buddy and they're walking us down this long. I mean, it was just like you would see in a movie. I mean, we are walking down this long hallway and it's me and my friend and this big, big prison guard, African-American dude, he's walking us down there. And I say African-American because it, it's relevant in a second. He was walking us down there. And he literally goes, you're the only white guys. Don't let them see you scared. And I remember being like, I've never been more scared of anything in my whole life. What am I going to do? And he was basically telling us, if you, if you act tough, you'll be fine. And when he said that, I was petrified. And then they opened the door. And when they opened the door, it was 80 dudes. And every single, they're all like sitting at the table. I think it was breakfast at that point. And 80 dudes turned and looked at me and my friend. And none of them stopped looking at us the entire time. They walked us all the way to our jail cell. And none of them stopped looking at us the whole time. And I just remember being like, man, my dad was right. He said that they're going to come after it, you know, because they came after him. And like, you know, it was all because he was, you know, uh, weak and, you know, looked weak. And so you got to look tough. And I'm just, I'm terrified. And a lot of other people gone to jail and, you know, they'd have been fine at this point. But because of my upbringing and what I went through and what I experienced, this was the worst thing I could have possibly go through. So we're in a corner cell. And they got a little desk down there where the cops sit. There's only two of them for 85 of us. And you're out. The doors are open the whole time, except for at night or during lockdown. And so we're in a corner cell, and the, the table can't see us, and they're coming in and out of our room all day. These guys are all day. And I'm watching as, like, people are getting pulled out for bond hearings. And there was a morning bond hearing, which means, like, if they if we – that's the only way you can get out is if you go to a bond hearing first. And so, like – these guys are coming in and out of our room and they're like, you know, sizing us up and like seeing what's up. And I had been gambling real heavy back then. And so I was like naming all the odds for the games that were on. I was like, yo, you know, who's winning the Oklahoma game minus two, 
And they thought, you know, this guy, you know, he can contribute something, you know, because there was, there was a TV with some games on it down there. And so, you know, uh, the whole time me and my friend were on high alert the whole time. He would stand by the door and I, I would try to rest and vice versa. Well, so many people were coming in and out of our room that they ended up moving us to another area of the of the jail and that decision had severe consequences that night after the bond hearings were all over with we were at lunch we were at dinner early dinner and um you know there was another guy in there with us and or, or, or sitting with us at dinner and I just remember he had these like sleeves all over his like tattoos all over his arms. That's all I remember about this guy. But he was near us at dinner. And at some point he got up and went back to his room, which was across from ours. But you could see like in it, you know, because his doors were open or you could see in it if the door was open. And it was right towards the end of dinner. And I just remember, like, I never wanted to go in my room. I always wanted to stay out in the middle because, like, I knew in the room was where where I was going to be in trouble, even though it was just me and my buddy for most of the time, other than people coming in and out. So I didn't want to go back to the room until last. And so we're, like, last of days ago walking in our room, and, and I hear from behind me one of the officers, one of the two officers is making her rounds, looking in all the cells to make sure everybody's in, and she'll shut the door. And I just heard her yell, I can't remember what it was. Again, you know, trauma-wise, you know, a lot of this is shaky for me. But I just remember her screaming at the top of her lungs. And she just started saying, suicide, suicide, suicide. And I'm turning around, like, walking in our room, and I'm just, like, watching all this happen. Like, I'm not in the room right at this point. My friend was sort of in it. And I'm turned around, and as soon as, as soon as she started screaming suicide, she went for her keys and she opened the door. And when she opened the door, she fell backwards and she fell on the ground and started screaming. And the guy who was at dinner with us or near us, he had taken a bed sheet and tied it around a sink and he tied it around his neck. <clears throat> Trigger warning. And uh, he sat down. And when he sat down, he was about that far off the ground. I could still see daylight underneath it, and he was shaking. He was he was shaking. Uh, I think he was still alive. I think. And um, she was the officer had fallen on the ground, and now she was on the ground, and she was having a, a t attack of some kind. She was having an emotional breakdown and screaming. And so the other officer comes, and she comes running up, and looks in, and she gets on her thing, and for three minutes it was just us by ourselves the lady was on the ground she was tending the other officer was tending to her and i guess they were getting their riot gear on because i just remember like like people like trying to go in and cut the guy down and like i i broke i broke and uh, when we got back into our cell, because riot team comes running in and they're run running through the main area in between our cell and the guy's cell. 
And they're saying, half of them are saying, get in your rooms, get in your rooms. And I'm getting in my room and I'm still holding, I'm like holding the door open as long as I possibly can. I don't want this thing to ever shut. And I'm looking. And I, my friend always said, why are you looking? And it was just like mom and dad yelling. Like I had to be there. Like I had to see what was going on. And they cut him down. And when they cut him down, they turned him and he looked at me. And uh, that's the only flashback that I ever have is his face. And like what had happened to his eyes and his tongue and like what happens to you when you choke to death like that. And I remember my friend saying, just get in the room, close the door. And I'm like, dude, I can't, I can't shut it. Cause that means we're stuck here. By the time they had come around and shut our door, I mean, we had a window and I never left the window. Of course, my friend never came to the window. Thank God. But I never left the window. And by the time that they had finally, you know, brought the guy and put him in the middle, like on the ground and started evaluating the crime scene. I was in full shock. I was in full shock. I was beating my head against the the cinder block walls. My friend was like grabbing me, just like not being able to leave, you know, like for people who experience panic, being able to leave is everything. Being able to go outside, being able to breathe, being able to remove yourself from the situation. And it was so loud in there. And I mean, it was, they were in riot gear for a reason. They knew what was going to happen. And I'll never forget how loud it was. And I just remember being all on all fours on the ground and hearing how loud it was and thinking my dad was right. My dad was right. And then I turned to my friend and I said, you know, that guy knows something we don't. It's so bad in here, he just killed himself. And I started looking for stuff to kill myself. But we had nothing, thank God. And my friend wouldn't have allowed it, of course. It was just like natural reaction, you know. And I'd never thought about that before that day, you know. Um, thought about it a lot since, though. And so, you know, again... I experienced that suicide a lot differently than other people. Some of them are probably fine. Some of them are probably dead. Some of them probably went through similar stuff I went through. But what I went through is is different because of my upbringing and what my anxiety and my predisposition to mental illness. And that day, I you know, I got PTSD. But leaving, you know leaving the room wasn't an option. I was still in there. Well, come to find out some of the calls that my friend was not me. I'm a no, I was borderline nobody, you know, not somebody get you out of jail. My friend had made a phone call to a powerful senator or legislator and uh, Todd Rutherford, shout out. Todd Rutherford called, called the judge and said, I just heard that somebody's dead in Alvin Glenn Detention Center, and these two guys have been calling trying to get out because they've been missing bond hearings all day. See, if we'd have had the bond hearing like we were supposed to, none of this would have ever happened. And to find out it was intentional later, at the same time that I'm in shambles inside the jail cell, that guy, the legislator, was making a phone call, and the judge is like, 
I'm going. She goes down in the middle of the night after the guy had killed himself, and she holds court for us. It was never been done before. And when they line us up to take us out, they, pit, they came and got us last because that was their way to make us stay in there longer. And he made fun of us. So he made fun of the, the, the officer who was doing the rounds, was making fun of me the whole time. He was laughing at me. It was like it was another day for them. And so they line up, you know, five or six guys, and I'm watching them. I'm still glued to the window. And I'm watching them go through each cell and pull these guys out. I'm like, what's going on? Maybe, like, maybe we'll be in this group. And, like, my anxiety was just, like, I was just, like, glued to the, and I mean, it was like a three-hour, two-hour process. The guy's still laying on the floor dead, by the way. And they're going around and getting out a couple of guys, and I'm like, maybe, maybe. And then finally, he appeared in the window and opened the door. And when he opened the door, I just remember being like, They lined us up. They walked us down to the courtroom that's there in the jail. And these guys that I'd been talking to all day long and trying to be friends with who had told me their stories that I didn't believe, they're all dumbfounded. They're confused. Like, what are we doing? Like, how are we getting out of here right now? Like, what in the world? We're in there, and the judge issues our bond, and she apologizes to us for what we had witnessed and been through, and it was very kind of her. She she saved me a lot, a lot of suffering by coming down in the middle of the night like that. And she... And she starts reading off, you know, the, the cases against the other people. And one by one, I'm hearing that these dudes were telling me the truth all day about what they didn't do or did do. And I'm thinking to myself, like, we're all screwed because we did. I mean, we one guy had been telling me throughout the day that he was in there for opening a knee high and orange soda and walking around the convenience store drinking it while he was continued shopping. And that's exactly what the judge said he did when she read it. And when I heard that and I heard some of the other stuff, I put it together later on in my story, which you'll hear when I open up my own criminal defense law firm, that these guys aren't going to get medical help. They're not going to have a lawsuit. They're not, nobody's going to care. And they went through the same thing. And it was in that moment that I dedicated my life to defending people criminally. They finally let us out. They took us back to our rooms. When I got, when I left, the guy was still on the floor. But we got out at like late, like four in the morning, three in the morning, something like that. And when I went back to my house and my brother came over, apparently, I don't remember that, my girlfriend at the time or whoever I was hanging out with, she came over and I just remember laying down on the bed after they left and not wanting to leave the room ever. And I was crying and I was screaming at night and I was afraid. I was, I was glued to the window, like who's coming, like totally paranoid. And that Monday, that was a Saturday, that Monday I went to a doctor and got diagnosed with PTSD, generalized anxiety disorder, depression, panic disorder, agoraphobia, a couple other different things. And that was the very first time that I had been given a prescription and he chose to prescribe me a benzodiazepine. And that began my slow, slow walk into death. And torment was taking that benzo at that moment. And so I went into my, the, the law firm that I was working for and I kind of told them what happened and they knew the other guy too and they kind of took our side and they were like, oh, this is not a big deal. 
And, you know, I was grateful for it, but I learned quickly that I couldn't drive near the area. I saw a cop car and I had a panic attack. I pulled over, I put, left the keys in the car and I ran into a restaurant. Like I was just totally, I totally broke. I had totally lost it at this point. And this was only a couple of days after they, you know, they let us out of jail. I had decided that I was going to go back home. Mom and dad were always saying, move back, move back, move back. And, um, I knew that I just needed to get out of that city. I knew that I needed to get out of there because they could do it. They did it to me once. They could do it again. They didn't care. It was like nothing. After you get out of jail, you get a court date. And that's your first date that you go in front of the judge. That's called your bench trial. And I, I got a court date along with the guy who I was in there with for, I mean, it had to have been seven to 10 days after I got out of jail. Couldn't have been longer than that. And I spent those seven to 10 days in horror going to see doctors and trying to figure out my life. But on the day to court, myself and my friend, we went in there with just a buddy who was an attorney. And uh, I, I requested another guy uh, who was a criminal defense, well-known criminal defense lawyer come as well, um, just to kind of see if we could resolve the issue. At this point, I, I thought I got arrested for asking a question. I thought that's, we were gonna go in there they were going to be like, yeah, uh, he, he, you know, was trespassing or something. I didn't think what was going to happen that, that actually happened. I didn't think that was what was going to happen. In the back of my mind, I thought we're going to be able to work this out. Even though I had anxiety and you have to wonder how that experience was for me to go to court and face these people. And my attorneys were like, let's just try it. Let's go in front of the judge. Let's try it. And I said, there's no way they're, they're going to lie. I looked over at him. I saw him across the hall and I said, they're going to lie. Go over and ask them their story. I mean, we're entitled to know it's called evidence. So he goes over and all the way across the courtroom, all the way across the hall. I see the three officers start getting aggressive with my attorney. And then all of a sudden one of them grabs his arm and starts jerking it like somebody had been grabbing his arm and then made some kind of push movement. And that was it. That was the, that was, that was the very first confirmation that I had to be, that while I was worried all those years about being falsely arrested, falsely accused, that was my confirmation right there in that moment that my fears were not irrational, that they weren't unbelievable. And I don't know why, because for other people, you know, maybe if you do the right things and you're just trying to, you know, just trying to get by, that's enough for, for this not to happen to you. But it wasn't for me. I mean, I was a good person when this went down. I was happy. I was loving. I was love. I was forgiving. And everything changed that day when I saw that officer lie. Soon after that, we requested a bench, a jury trial, in which puts it later on and you can go to court later. You can start gathering evidence. So we requested the evidence. And in between the time when we requested the evidence and before we got it, I went to get my hair cut downtown, right in the area where the incident happened. This was my goodbye. I was, you know, really upset after what had happened, especially what I'd seen in court. And I told, you know, my barber about me being upset that they were lying. And that's when she told me, you know, there's a video. 
the bar next door, the restaurant next door, which was closed at the time, recorded the whole thing. And, you know, at that moment, I didn't know what the incident report said, but I knew they were saying I grabbed somebody by the arm and I knew that wasn't, that there was just no chance. My anxiety would never allow me to do something like that. Never, never. After I found out that there was a video from the young lady who was cutting my hair, I went back to my office because I was still working at a law firm and I typed up what's called a spoilation of evidence letter. I'd never heard of one. I mean, I'd heard of it in law school, but I'd never seen one or had to use one in a case. And I knew that my only hope of getting that video from that restaurant would be if I, you know, got their lawyers involved. And luckily it was a well-known spot and their lawyer was well-known. I called them, Joe McCullough. Um, he's also involved in murder murder cases with me, but, uh, he told his client, you know, give him the video. And so we we went into a closet. I thought it was just going to be some, you know, shaky thing that you couldn't see anything. And by the time we'd gotten over to the closet where the video equipment was, I was convinced it wasn't going to be worth anything. And he opened it up. And, I mean, this guy spared no expense on surveillance equipment. It was top of the line. And the video was if Steven Spielberg picked out the spot. It showed everything. My hands were up the entire time. They never came down. Never did they come down. And it showed the officers, you know, dragging my friend down by his shirt, tripping him, getting him on the ground and putting his hand behind his head so far that that's the reason that he was writhing in pain and was the reason that my attention was called over to it. But you can just see me walk up nice and slow after they lifted him up hands up the whole time and I was asking him you know are you really taking this guy to jail I mean the guy who was arrested with me was a prosecutor at the time I was trying to just like help the whole situation I knew that this was not one of those bully situations on a sidewalk that was just going to go away so I'm saying hey listen you know what what what's going on at least tell me at least tell me what jail you're taking him to because there was a couple there was one downtown city of Columbia and then there's the one that we actually got taken to was Alvin S. Glenn Detention Center, which was like 20 minutes away. And we had a wedding the next day. So I was going to have to pick this guy up. Well, they didn't like that I asked what jail they were taking him to. And about that time, they grabbed my arm. He grabbed my arm and shoves me up the, the street. And I back up. I still have my hands up. And all I say, uh, all I say at that point is, um, you know, I'm an attorney and so is he. And just tell me what jail you're taking. As soon as I said I was an attorney, they came at me. They reached for their handcuffs. The, the, the female officer on scene was the one who approached me. The supervisor came over as well, and they handcuffed me. And that's when you can kind of like see me off in the distance like, what is going on here? So the video confirmed everything that I knew, and that was that I didn't do anything wrong, that my friend didn't do anything wrong. They arrested him for trespassing. The video literally shows him leaning on a different restaurant's wall uh, waiting on his ride, waiting on me to come out. And which is totally, it's not only legal, it's also safe. You know, Columbia is not exactly the safest place to send some guy up the road. So he was waiting on me and you know, it, it was gratifying, but at the same time, my lawyer was there and he watched it with me. And I think he understood the gravity of the situation and he understood that, you know, that they lied. They just got caught. And somebody got really hurt. And that was me. I realized then with confirmation from the video 
and the discussion we had at court that they lied and that they lied in an effort to um, cover up something that they did to me. And I just can't explain. I just can't explain what that does to a person's soul. When you think that if you do the right things for the right reasons and you're a good person and you're fraternity president, you don't cheat on your girlfriend and you're nice to your mom and you forgive your dad, that it just doesn't have the universe. It just works out in your favor. And they came at me and they didn't stop throughout the entire lawsuit. And one thing that I remember is going home after I had met with my lawyers in Columbia. My home was two hours away, by the way, in Myrtle Beach with my parents, was that I was totally alone. And what I mean by that is I gave my attorneys the, the video. I gave them my statement. They were typing up a lawsuit, and they were going to attach the video to the lawsuit, and it was going to do what it did. And when I got home, I told my parents the plan. My attorneys are typing up a lawsuit. Like, I'm going to stick her up for myself. And my dad told me, if you do this, I'll never speak to you again. And you are not a member of this family. I remember what I was eating when he told me that. And I remember thinking that if that's what you would do, is nothing, then I'm going to do the opposite. Because I always always wanted to and my dad knew it he used to say you guys don't want to be like me and that was my what my second biggest fear besides being falsely arrested was being like my father so I knew that I had the worst anxiety that a person could imagine PTSD's main symptom is paranoia so you can imagine what I was already enduring and going through but I made the decision with my mom who you know bless her heart I don't think she knew what we were getting into. My dad knew, but he's a coward in that moment. And I just had a feeling that if somebody didn't be held accountable for what happened to me, that I wouldn't be able to get over it. And I was right. And as you'll hear throughout the rest of my story and the stories of the people I represented, there is no accountability where I'm from. Well, by the time I get home, have the discussion with my parents about filing a lawsuit. I had already seen a doctor in Columbia two hours away where the incident happened who prescribed me what's called Ativan. And Ativan is a very entry-level benzodiazepine, I should say. And that was the first that was the first time anybody had ever talked to me about mental health. That was the first time anybody ever talked to me about mental health drugs or what to do or you know I, I still hadn't even heard really a therapy at this point even though all my family had been through I took it you know I had no I, I had no idea that it it would turn into what it turned into and so I went home with my prescription and I got new doctors in in the Myrtle Beach area and I continued my treatment with them and it wasn't long after I started on that first one at a van that I needed something more powerful. And so the next step from Ativan is a drug called Clonopin. 
and clonopin has a longer half-life but for somebody like me who was experiencing an extreme amount of fear and anxiety day in and day out i was being triggered left and right for my job which i'll talk about in a second and um you know it just got darker from there so it was around that time when i first got back that i decided you know the only way that i was going to be able to survive in this world was if I could adequately defend myself without having to call somebody. And I remember going into law school, that's what I wanted all along. But when you get offered, you know, six figures, you're the only person in your family, you know, to be making that at that point. I took it, you know, and I went and worked for the insurance companies. But I I went to law school so I could learn to defend myself. When I went home, I went up to the courthouse and I just sat there. And I watched and I tried to figure out who was who and I just couldn't figure it out. So I did some some searching and I, I uh, you know, asking around and I'd heard that there was this old man who had been practicing for like 40 years and the words were, he don't give a fuck. That was the words. Like this guy, he don't care. And I needed that because I cared deeply about everything. I cared what everybody thought about me. I cared what everybody was saying about me. I cared about what people were, were not, you know, like what was coming, what was going to come. I mean, I was afraid of everything. When you go through an experience like I went through and you don't do the work to come out of it, I mean, you're in a lot of trouble. And so I needed somebody like that. I needed somebody who was going to show me where the line was and was going to tell me how it really is. And so I started working for this guy named Jim Irvin. And Jim, man, RIP, he... <laughs> Jim looked like Columbo. He he smoked one cigarette every four minutes, and he did it in his car while I was driving. So I was like this young kid driving this old man around. He had the windows up, just ripping them. But this is what I signed up for. I mean, I wanted to be around. You know, this is what I needed to be around. You know, I needed to know like how how to, how am I really going to defend myself? Like, show me what's up. Show me what's real. Show me what goes on behind closed doors. And yeah, I mean, right away. This guy had like the craziest cases that you could imagine. He sent me to uh, to a um, a mediation in Atlanta, Georgia, for a guy who was in a prison van, and the prison van got struck by a, a truck, and I mean, a lot of people died, and I had no idea what I was doing down there. I had no clue. I was just googling it the whole time. But that's what I needed, right? Like this guy was just like gave me the opportunity, and I could figure it out, you know. I'm a survivor. I can always, you know, find one way or another to get it done. And so I loved it. I loved working for him. I loved the guy. You know, he he was very aware of what was going on inside of my head. He was very aware about, you know, me being afraid of the police and why he was big into my lawsuit. He, you know, confidence every day. You're doing the right thing. You know, F these guys. You know, this guy, you could, he would wear pajama pants underneath his suit so you could see his pajama pants hanging out. I mean, he really didn't care. Either that or like he cared, just didn't know what was going on because he was so old. But, uh, you know, he and I became really good friends. And, um, and one of the very first things that he did for me was my grandmother died. My dad's mom died and she died on a Saturday. And on Friday of that week, my dad got a call saying she's at the end of her life. She was only an hour and a half away and my dad was crying on the couch. And I just remember being like, get your bag, let's go. 
you know, I don't know, like, I guess he was just going to stay there now, knowing him as well as I do now, he was definitely not going to go. And so we went up there and spent time with grandma as she passed away. I didn't know her too well. Um, you know, but being around my dad in that moment was, was good for me to see, you know, another side of him, um, a loving, you know, side and concerned and all that, not just anxious and controlling like he was with my mom. The first case I ever tried was the next morning after we buried my grandmother. And my dad had me do the eulogy and this thing was two hours away. So I'm driving back and I am literally on the phone with friends around town. It's Sunday night asking for books, like where to stand, like what to do. Like Google was just starting, starting to pop off. But in 2010 or whatever this was, 11, you know, it wasn't too descriptive. And so I spent my night not studying the case. Like I spent the night like learning where to stand, who goes first. Like I does stuff that you, you could like really embarrass yourself on. And so like, that's what anxiety does for me. It walks me all the way through the process. Like some people go straight in that, well, I want to know everything. I need to know each step. Like, where do I stand? Who goes first? Like all those other things that I'm learning. And so we get there and we start trying the case the next day and Jim's, you know, doing his thing. He does the opening statement and, um, state go, prosecutor goes first and they call this first witness as a police officer who arrested my client. And, uh, I had no idea like what was going on. I just remember reading, uh, you know, a couple of little things about the case. And so this cop's on the stand and my heart's going crazy. Cause like I'm dealing with police officers in my case and like, you know, this is him like, tr you know, telling the truth. Right. So I'm like, first case, first guy gets up there and starts lying. And I have come to terms with the fact that I won so much in court because I was willing to call him out on the lie all the way. So I look at Jim and I go, Jim, let me, let me cross examine this guy. And, and he's like, what? And I'm like, Jim, I got it. Let me go. So he lets me go. I stand up. I start cross examining this guy and I kind of knew like how to talk, but not really. And I was like, you said you arrested this guy because he, you arrested him with for public intox. Um, because he was laying on the beach and he's like, well, we chased him there and he jumped and he was hiding there. Cause he was supposed to be a mastermind burglar, a burglar lies all these houses broke in and stole purses out of them or something. And so they arrested a, this guy near the scene where the, where the, it, it, where the issues were happening and they arrested him for public intoxication. I'm guessing because they didn't have anything else to arrest him for. Well, that ain't right because the next day he went to court and pled guilty to public intoxication the next morning. So I get this officer on the stand and I'm like, so you arrest this guy for public intox? You just said he was a mastermind burglar. He went methodically. That was your word, methodically, one house to the next. He was cunning. He knew what he was doing. But then you arrested him for public intox? And he froze and he was like, yeah, well, uh, we only did that for procedural purposes uh, because we didn't have anything to arrest him for. And I was like, oh, my God, I think I think I just won. And I, I knew I had to bring it home a little more. And I go, well, are, were you aware that he went to court and pled guilty the next day for public intox? And he started laughing like, oh, what an idiot. And I said, do you normally arrest people for crimes they don't commit and then allow them to plead guilty to stuff that you know they didn't do wrong? And that was it. The jury was out for five days. Five days they spent talking to each other. I did the closing argument as well my client made me made jim let me do the closing argument they were out for five days and they came back not guilty and that was the beginning 
of me doing two things. One, sharpening myself to the point where they couldn't do it to me again. And two, triggering myself over and over and over again. Because in almost every single file I ever had, it was a lie. Sometimes they were big lies. Sometimes they were small lies. Sometimes they were inadvertent lies. But there was almost always lies. And so I practiced law in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, in Horry County, South Carolina. And I saw over and over again some of the most ridiculous injustices that a person can see. And while this is going on, I'm also in a lawsuit with the city of Columbia over what happened to me. My lawsuit taught me a lot about practicing law, but also about like what authority can do to you when it wants to come for you. And I thought maybe in the beginning that maybe they would do the right thing and be like, let's just, you know, get this thing over with. Here's a few grand, go get your head treated. But they did the opposite. They doubled down. They deposed everybody I cared about. They brought everybody in. My ex-girlfriend asked about our sex life. They brought in my mom and hammered her about being an alcoholic. They brought in my dad and, you know, questioned him about all his past. And it was all had nothing to do with anything other than to mess up, you know, my mental health and hope that I would end the lawsuit. And it taught me a lot about my profession because, I mean, that's what I, you know, I, I didn't see that aggression ever again. I didn't see it ever again in any of my cases, but I saw some stuff, you know, that was pretty close to that. But so when my lawsuit was going on, um, I started really losing touch with reality. I mean, I was, my PTSD was so bad. I was, the medicine that I was on wasn't enough. So I was like withdrawing in between doses. I was practicing law in an area of the country where, you know, lies and on incident reports are nothing. It's fine. As long as you get the bad guy. And it, it really pushed me to the limit. I started drinking vodka really heavily. Well, I started drinking everything, but I started drinking vodka really heavily. I started needing to get out of the house every night, every night. You knew you could find me somewhere at some bar and the more distracted I could be, the better. So like something that would take my attention away, like, you know, music or uh, video arcade games, karaoke, big time karaoke guy back then. Um, but what I was experienced through my lawsuit was driving me literally. I mean, I don't want to say, I don't want to say derogatory anti-stigma term, but something you'll understand. It was driving me insane. You know, I, I was getting sicker and sicker. And the reason why is because there was a lot of media attention around the lawsuit. And so there was people talking in the media about whether or not what I did was right or wrong, whether or not about, you know, what the police did was right or wrong. Um, but one thing that they, the media kept asking was, you know, what's going on with the investigation? Like what happened? Are these officers going to be suspended or, and the police chief and the chief of sled who was supposed to be investigating police actions in South Carolina. It's called the South Carolina Law Enforcement Division. They're the head police officers in the state, and they investigate whether or not an officer did something wrong. He said to the news media that uh, they were there was an active investigation into, the, into my case, the Jonathan McCoy case, uh, 
and that that case, quote, ended up being part of a larger issue in the area, end quote. That's what he said. So you can imagine what this did to my anxiety. Like I, you know, I told y'all like there was a lot going on down there. It just seemed off that night. It seemed like they, they were just arresting people and then something was happening, whether or not they were extorting them for money or what, I don't know. But it seemed like there was a pattern going on there. They, these guys had seemed like they had done it before, especially the not turning the paperwork in on time trick that they did, which kept me in jail longer, uh, which is the reason why I saw the, the suicide. At that point, in the, middle, in, in the middle towards the end of the lawsuit, I wanted to know, you know, are these officers, is anything going to happen to these guys and, and, and ladies? Are they going to be suspended? Like, you know, are, are they going to, is somebody going to say like, hey, they did wrong. Like, it's obvious there's a video. Like, clearly the incident report in the video didn't add up. As a matter of fact, a news reporter went around asking people in Columbia, here's the video, here's the incident report. Do these match? And everybody's like, no, of course not. The officers lied on the incident report. And so, you know, we're, we're towards the end of the case and I'm thinking that they're going to announce something, you know, like whether the cops, I mean, I, I never imagined that they would get in trouble. I just thought maybe they would say retraining or, you know, whatever. And it was in, um, the spring of 2011 when sled issued a statement and it said that we don't have a record at all into the high profile arrest and investigation of Jonathan McCoy. And he said, and in, in not so uncertain terms, that they didn't even write my name down. They took my ability to sleep. They took any chance I ever have of having a day free of anxiety. And they didn't even write my name down. It wasn't even like, hey, we didn't find anything wrong. It was like, who cares? And that was it. Nobody asked any more questions. Nobody pushed anybody. Nobody cared. And that was in 2011. I had been home for two years, and that was the first day when I read that article that I actually thought about suicide. And, you know, I started... I mean, I thought I was journaling, but I was writing a suicide letter. And to know like other victims that don't get, you know, don't get accountability and what they go through. There's just no describing how afraid you feel that it's gonna happen again. And that's all I ever thought about was like, they didn't even write my name down. I kinda wanna talk a little bit about um, your past creating who you are and the things that we endure and the things that we go through um, are the reasons we act a certain way or we feel a certain way about ourselves. And that's what happened to me during my mom's drinking. You know, I, I really, I loved and love currently as well, but I loved this woman so much and unconditionally. And then when she started drinking, I believed what she told me, just like I believed what she told me before she was drinking. And when she was drinking, she, she would get upset with me because I was the only one in the house that was trying to, I guess you could call it intervene before the show intervention, but I was the only one trying to show, you know, just how far gone she actually was. And 
during that time, you know, I would pull wine bottles out. I would, you know, call attention to the fact that she was stumbling and falling and hadn't come out of her room. And I would say, Dad, she's drunk. She's drunk. Look, she's drunk. You know, whatever a 15-year-old boy would say. And she turned on me. She would say things like, we wasted $5,000 on your braces because your jawline never came in. Or things like, you know, you've got a fat neck or, you know, a fat chin to a 15-year-old boy who's just trying to, like, figure life out at that point. You know, I believed it, sincerely believed that I was ugly. And then I had a problem with, like, gaps in my teeth when I had braces and a lot of pimples. I was under a lot of stress. And she knew to, she knew to bring attention to that. And then I never had a girlfriend. I had a girlfriend in eighth grade only because my best friend who I, I met the first day of school really introduced me to her. And, you know, it worked out. We were friends. But in high school, I never really had a girlfriend. And I never, of course, never brought any girls to the house, not one. Um, and it was because it was a very dark place for me. You know, learning that I had body image issues and self-image issues because of what I went through, you know, was um, important to me because people didn't see me as somebody who should have body image issues and self-image issues. Uh, people saw me like I believed the opposite, um, and that just wasn't the case. I mean, I knew that people liked funny, and I knew that people liked attractive, and after my arrest, I went all in on my looks to bolster the fact that I wanted to be well-known or popular and you'll find out about famous in a little bit because that's that's what I believed would protect me the most is if I was well-loved and famous or infamous or well-known and it's not hard to see how I came up I came to that conclusion I mean look at today everybody's got the people they don't like in politics or entertainment or whatever and you're all sitting there thinking why isn't this person in jail oh they're not in jail because they're famous well, that resonated with me at a very early age. And so, you know, I think me being obsessed with like the way I looked early on and ha having to be in magazines and, you know, it was a direct correlation with me, you know, wanting, needing as a defense mechanism to be well-known and well-liked because by that time they'd already done it to me. So I immediately went into survival mode and I started like applying for, you know, reality shows and stuff to up my name. You know, I didn't want anybody to do anything crazy. I just, um, or think anything about me. I just wanted for them to, if it happened again, it wouldn't say, I mean, I, I was already an attorney. It said high profile in the, in the line, but if I had a following and I had people who cared about me and loved me, then it would be a lot different. And I knew that they would never let it go. I remember I applied, I met um, some people from my college that were friends of mine, Katie and Jamie um, and Brooke, they, they were on Survivor, an amazing race. And I was like, how do you do that? And they, you know, kind of told me how to get on it. And so 
Um, I was a finalist with my mom, believe it or not, in L.A. They flew us out there. We went to the productions, you know, place. I can talk all day about these reality show uh, application processes. But basically, you know, we didn't make it on the show that season. There was another mom and son on this on this season that year. And they called me a week later. The same casting company called me a week later and they were like, hey, we want you to try out for Survivor. And so I make it all the way to, I mean, I met Jeff Probst, I met Jerry Bruckheimer to get on Survivor. And I mean, I was like this close. I mean, I was, I, I had seen like all the other 15 who actually made it on. I think I was like number 18 or 19 in this, in this group that went upstairs at CBS and met these folks. Um, and, you know, I, every single time that they said, no, nah, not this time, I thought to myself, you were so close to being protected. I mean, that's all it was to me. I just knew that the only way that I could assure that this wouldn't happen again is if I was somebody. And the only way I could think to be somebody, what I wasn't, I was still a nobody being a lawyer. So only way I could think to be somebody was, you know, to use whatever I had. And back then, you know, I was running marathons and stuff. And so, um, I was, uh, eventually in a magazine, Cosmos, most eligible bachelor. I think it was in 2000. 10 right after the uh yeah 2010 i think it's a katie perry issue <laughs> but anyway i you know i agreed to do that um uh and wanted to do that because again you know i thought i'll be you know i'll have a better opportunity for if somebody comes after me or somebody tries to do authority wise or somebody accuses falsely accuses me you know it'll be much harder for them to pull it off and I mean, that's the truth. Like, I don't talk to anybody now. Like, now that I'm healthy, like, I don't post on Facebook. You know, I don't, I don't even watch reality shows anymore. Um, but I had a strong need, you know, to, you know, to be known. And I thought if I was known that people would, you know, like me because I could do the funny thing. And if they liked me, then they couldn't come after me again. And so all of this was happening at the same time where I was like, you know, you know, flying out to LA, you know, like sort of in magazines, like sort of up in my notoriety a little bit. Um, but at the same time I was winning in the courtroom. I mean, I won every single felony trial I ever tried before my suicide attempt in 2018. Um, and I won them all based on police misconduct. All of them I won based on police skirting the line and me, me showing the jury that if you allow them to get away with it, it's more damaging to society than allowing this guy out on the street, you know, for whatever alleged crime it committed. And they always agreed with me. All the while, while that was going on, I was still trying to resolve my lawsuit versus City of Columbia. I was trying to get my case over with and resolved, and they weren't interested in settlement. They always believed that I, they were going to win and that I, they did nothing wrong. And, um, you know, as a matter of fact, the first judge to review the file said that, they, the officers were granted qualified immunity. And then she, she, you know, that was a magistrate. She was appealed to the, the chief judge and he was a professor at the law school. And I had just graduated from law school really at this time, maybe a couple years before. And, uh, and he chose to hold my hearing on whether or not the officers did anything wrong under qualified immunity at the law school in front of like 200 kids people in class you know in these classes and you know I don't even remember I was so anxious 
about what he was going to decide and whether or not he was going to tell me that I could get retribution for what they did to me. You know, I just kind of waited and, and waited for the end. I kind of blacked out what the attorneys were saying and waited to the end. And my attorney, you know, said, well, they're going to, he's going to issue an order. And I thought it was going to be that day. And later he ruled that they were, they were in the wrong and that, you know, they weren't allowed, you know, immunity under some circumstances and that the, the law that I was arrested for was unconstitutional. I was arrested for interfering and the law stated that it shall be unlawful for anyone to interfere with an officer during the normal course and scope of their duties, pretty much in any manner. So if you ask an officer, like, where's the nearest mall and that interferes with him writing a ticket, you're going to jail pretty much. And so obviously that's not allowed under our constitution because you'll arrest people for just asking questions, which is a first amendment protected right, which is what I was arrested for asking questions. And so we moved on towards the trial phase. And by this point I had been getting Botox injections in the back of my head for, um, migraines. Uh, they were called blocks or something. I couldn't even open my eyes because I was in so much pain in my head. Um, I had like these, uh, pain patches on my legs because I developed well, what they thought was peripheral neuropathy at the time. I couldn't like sleep at night. My legs were burning all throughout the night. Um, when my, when my feet would hit the floor in the morning, it was like they were made of glass and they were just shattering. And I would spend like five minutes every morning, just like on my knees, you know, crying, waiting for the pain to go away. And then I would get in the shower and I would try to organize my thoughts and I couldn't, I was so anxious and I was being triggered, you know, just by my own thoughts. So it was really hard for me to just day to do the day to day back then. But I was, and I needed to stay strong and I needed for people to think that I was really sharp or else I would be, you know, an easy target. And I did not want people to think they could come for me again. So I showed up always and I won. And I made sure of it, but it was my anxiety that helped me win. It wasn't despite my anxiety, it was usually because, because I could always anticipate what was going to happen. People usually don't anticipate bad things happening or things not going your way. Well, that was my, that was my recipe. You know, that was what happened my whole life was things, you know, things that aren't supposed to happen to you, things that rarely happen to other people. And so when I went into court, I always, I already knew if this person lied, if they, you know, showed this or whatever it could be disastrous to happen in a courtroom, I was ready for it. By the time that we had reached my trial date in 2013, you know, I was still working. I think I was still working with Jim, uh, at that time, but I couldn't even walk. I mean, I was literally in a wheelchair to and from the elevator of the hotel that I was staying in. And I was staying in a hotel because they had a guy out front, a guard out front. Um, and I was at that point, my paranoia had fully taken over and people talk a lot about, you know, PTSD and being paranoid and it being hypervigilance being that one of the number one things that you have to go through. And it's so true, but I thought I was being followed. I thought I was being set up. And then it turned out when we were, we got the evidence in the case that I was being followed, that there was somebody following me with a camera trying to get me you know, in a strip club trying to get me acting, you know, outlandish back then they didn't understand PTSD as well as they do today. And like back then you're like, Oh, well he's drinking and at a club, he must not have mental health issues. And I'm like, well, 
I'm healthy now, so I don't drink and go to the club, but you know, that's what they were trying to catch me to do, I guess. And it was creepy. I mean, they were in the bushes, they were, and I felt it too. Imagine being somebody with PTSD and paranoia, feeling that and knowing that energy's out there following you. And the videos were rough for me to see. There was an incident with the guy who actually followed me that they had, the private investigator that they had on me. I asked around and by this time in my career, you know, in the first couple of years, I'd be, I made good friends with good cops. The good officers, you could always tell who the ones were that I believe were honest because I showered those guys with praise, with whatever I possibly could, um, you know, attention, whatever I could to show like how much I appreciated them in my life. But the bad ones, I mean, they hated me. They hated me more than you could ever imagine. And I got warnings all the time in court. I had people saying, watch your back. I had people saying, you know, things like, uh, you know, you'll end up in the other chair, stuff like that. And most of the time they were officers. One time it was a prosecutor, but we get to the, the end of my lawsuit and where we go and we pick a jury in Columbia. And I love the jury that we picked, but I mean, I was in shambles. I couldn't even walk. I, when I went up to pick the jury at my attorney's office, I laid on the couch in his, in his uh, main area there. And I think that was like the first time that he saw just like how physically messed up I was. And they were all young lawyers that I had at the time. Um, you know, they made, they made, they did it best they could. There was some mistakes made and how they, how they communicated with me. Not all of them, only one of them actually. Um, but I, you know, I settled my case on Friday night going into St. Patrick's Day weekend because city council met and, uh, and they voted to give me $300,000. And so, you know, I, I didn't have much of a say in that. And that's all I'll say about that. But, uh, you know, I, um, I think that I, without a doubt, I regret settling to this day. Now, if you'd asked me back then, I would have said, I, I need to settle because I can't make it. But I now, now I know that I could have physically made it and it would have made a difference. Knowing what I know now that those officers would have had to testify because the way it sits now, you know, that was it. The $300,000 was, was all I, you know, quote unquote, all I got. But I mean, I had lost so much. I had lost my ability to sleep, my ability to trust, my ability to pick my own life and my own future. You know, after fees and all the other stuff got hold of it, I had about 85,000 cash after the everything. I spent 4,000 on clothes in Charleston and I gave my mom the rest. And I said, go find me a house and a law firm. And so, you know, uh, mom and I, you know, I didn't know anything about home, buying a home or whatever. And she had already done it with my dad. And so, you know, my requirements were out in the middle of nowhere, no neighbors, you know, classic person with PTSD. And so my mom and I, we went, she helped me pick out the house. And then I, I gave her the rest of the money. And I think it was like 15 grand or something after the down payment. And I said, go open the law office of Johnny McCoy with my paralegal that I had. And we're going to do criminal and we're going to do civil rights. And we're going, we're going to make them answer for what they do to people. You'll hear about on the next episode how I responded, how I broke a certain way, the different ways that I would cope with different medications, alcohol, 
You'll hear about how I used to try cases and win them and how I fought for the little guy as a criminal defense attorney and as I battled the state and the people who I believed did me wrong and did other people wrong as a civil rights attorney. We're also going to talk about, you know, some hopeful moments and we'll begin to talk about how I climbed out of the darkness after all that time. So I appreciate you guys listening. Again, this is just my story, my version of it, and it's really helping me heal. And I appreciate you all for being part of that process. I'll see you next week.